Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. Wow, that was pretty easy. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Peter Gettler, the president of the Cato Institute. It's a pleasure to welcome you here and to thank you for being part of this event. I want to congratulate John Samples and our team for putting on an excellent conference. Thank you. Thank you to those of you who are attending. Thank you especially to the speakers who are adding their, uh, their wisdom and expertise to the proceedings. We appreciate that dedication of time. And a special thank you to the Cato donors who are here, without whose support uh, this conference, this room, and even these sandwiches wouldn't be possible. I thank John for giving me the honor of introducing our luncheon speaker, although, the, ironically, the easiest way to turn a group of First Amendment adherents against the idea of free speech is to ask me to address them. But uh, be that as it may, it's a pleasure to introduce Eugene Volokh, the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA, and many of you know him as the founder and co-conspirator, or co-author, of the Volokh Conspiracy, um, which I think is a very unique uh, internet forum, because I think it's pretty rare when you have a blog with, I think it's fair to say, a distinct philosophical or ideological tilt that nonetheless attracts a very wide range of uh, readers and participants. It, in fact, has been the only blog over the years where I actually read the comments because there's actually a lot, I've learned a lot, and there's a lot of interesting debate that goes on, and it's evidence that the readers and users of the blog, of the Volokh Conspiracy, really do span the breadth of the philosophical and political spectrum, which I think is pretty unique in, uh, in these days of, uh, of comment sections filled with snark, trolling, and vitriol. Um, so we thank you for that. But the Volokh Conspiracy, which I should say, I, I really dove into reading a number of years ago when I retired from my first career. I actually wanted to study constitutional law, and my idea was to either work at Cato or maybe the Institute for Justice. And then someone pointed out to me that if I came to Cato and worked in the Center for Constitutional Studies, I would work for Roger Pallon. But if I instead came to Cato to be president, Roger Pallon would work for me, and that that would be better. So that's what I decided to do. I abandoned my dreams of, uh, of a law degree. But the Volokh Conspiracy is the tip of the iceberg for Eugene. He and his family emigrated to the United States from the Soviet Union, the Ukraine, which was then part of the Soviet Union, when he was seven. By the age of nine, he was taking university-level math and calculus courses. And at an age when most of us are thinking about trying our first beer, like 15, he actually graduated from UCLA with a bachelor's degree. But don't be too impressed because he did choose a gut major, namely mathematics and computer science. And he then spent 12 years as a computer programmer, including being a partner in his own software firm where they sell software that was written by him. So I think it's a great message to young people who are thinking about the trade-offs between being an academic and a scholar and exercising your entrepreneurial talents in business, Eugene is an example of someone who gives the answer, you can do both. 
Um, having wearied of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the challenges that faced him, he was actually up for something really difficult, which was trying to square cases like Wickard B. Filburn, Caroline Products, and Korematsu with the Constitution, which I assume is a, is a, uh, a challenge that persists for you to this day. But uh, he teaches tort law, free speech law, religious law, church state law, and it runs a, uh, a legal clinic uh, teaching how to write First Amendment amicus briefs. He's the author of three textbooks, two of which pertain to First Amendment law, and one uh, is uh, about uh, legal writing. He's the author of 75 law review articles and over 80 op-eds, and I think it's safe to say he's one of our nation's foremost experts and defenders of the First Amendment. So please join me in welcoming, it's proud to have you at Cato, Eugene Bollock. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. It's a, a great, great pleasure to be here. Um, I decided to try to give a talk on something different, different from what I'd been writing about before, still in the free speech area, but also my sense is different from the usual diet uh, at Cato events, diet that I have helped to contribute to before and that I've appreciated, uh, appreciated uh, uh, for a long time. I don't think this is sort of a, in some kind of a traditional red meat libertarian, um, libertarian talk. Um, in fact, if anything, it's a talk about a subject that my guess is, you know, maybe there have been such, such at Cato, but, uh, uh, but uh, I think pretty rare. This is what we call in law school, the class is called remedies. It's kind of, it seems an undramatic class. Even the name is kind of generic, remedies. It's about injunctions. It's about actually criminal versus civil remedies. It's about damages. It's about the stuff that doesn't get as much attention as uh, the glamour topics like First Amendment law, but turns out to be very important in every topic, and certainly remedies scholars. By the way, Doug Laycock, who was mentioned, quite correctly mentioned in the um, uh, previous panel, uh, in addition to being uh, the, one of the nation's uh, uh, foremost uh, religion law scholars, is also one of the nation's foremost remedies scholars. And they'll tell you that the history of liberty is in large measure a history of procedure, the history of what it is that substantively how we are constrained by the law is in large measure a history of remedies, what it is exactly that courts can do to us in enforcing the law. So the name of the talk is Free Speech, Libel, and Privacy in the Internet Age. But interestingly, if you look at the rules certainly of libel law at the Supreme Court level, the substantive rules have not really changed in about 30 years. The last case before the Supreme Court to deal with libel was Masson versus New Yorker magazine. That was back in 1992. Uh, and even that was actually only a minor, minor change at that point. Uh, but I will argue that well below the Supreme Court level, there's been a revolution in remedies, a revolution in the way that libel law, invasion of privacy law, and related areas have been treated. Uh, it could be a welcome one, it could be a bad one. This is mostly a paper that's descriptive, that talks about what's actually happening. But I think it's tremendously important. And it also ties in with technological change. Generally speaking, uh, most areas of law do not focus on the technology, do not focus on the medium, they focus on the message. Uh, there's no fax law, 
You can enter into a contract or libel someone by fax just as much as you can by letter, no special rules. Likewise, with the Internet, the Supreme Court has generally said that Internet speech under the First Amendment is just as protected as other kinds of speech. But it turns out that as technology changes the enforceability of the law, it changes the ways the courts see the law being under-enforced and changes how they think that the court law ought to be enforced. Again, maybe not soundly, but I just want to lay out for you what is actually happening, and then we will have some time to talk about whether it should be. Uh, oops, I think I hit the wrong button. Ah, that's much better. So libel. So when, when um, most of us think of libel, we might think of New York Times v. Sullivan. This is the famous Anthony Lewis book about, about um, uh, uh, libel. By the way, how many people here have legal training? So some, so if you remember, if you took First Amendment law, you might remember New York Times v. Sullivan was surely uh, um, uh, one of the cases you studied. Another is Gertz v. Robert Welch involving private figure speech. Another is Dun & Bradstreet versus Greenmont's Builders involving business speech that was seen as in matters of purely private concern. You probably didn't study Tory versus Cochran. This is Johnny Cochran. He was the plaintiff in the case. Uh, I wish I had Ulysses Torrey's picture, but he, uh, I, I don't know if there is one out there. Um, it came before the Supreme Court, and then what happened is while the, court, while, uh, the case was pending, Johnny Cochran died. And because this was a claim about an injunction uh, um, against libel, that's, this, is, this is why the case is important, the question there was whether you could have injunctions of libel. Um, uh, because he died, the case died with him pretty much because a forward-looking remedy against defamation couldn't make any more sense once the uh, defamed person died, even if he was actually being defamed because under American law you can't defame the dead. It's not, it's not a tort. Um, so uh, uh, the case ended up fizzling. But it turns out to be the signal of something really big that's been happening since then in lower courts. We don't study it, though. We study New York Times v. Sullivan. And in many ways, we have this image of libel law as being about the newspaper articles or the ads in a newspaper about some politician. Uh, but what we really should be thinking in many ways is about um, Tory v. Cochran, a case about a little guy who was picketing outside of Johnny Cochran's office. Cochran claimed it was an extortion scheme, but Tory was claiming that Cochran had mistreated him, and he was trying to get people to boycott Johnny Cochran through this picketing. And that, in many ways, is the model for what a lot of libel law litigation is looking like today. So if you look at how it is that the law has controlled libel, and by the way, let me just step back and say I acknowledge that especially libertarians uh, there, there's a split. As some people think that libel law should not exist because it is a restriction on speech, even if that's on false speech that damages people's reputation, and we should have no right to control what's in other people's heads, even as a result of false statements. Others might say, no, no, libertarianism allows for government action to prevent force or fraud. Libel is a form of fraud, uh, even if the damaged person is less immediately the listener and more the subject of the speech. But let's take for now what American law has, has accepted for centuries, which is that there is, uh, the, that libel is punishable. It's an exception from the First Amendment. So the traditional means of controlling it has been civil damages. Remember, that's New York Times v. Sullivan. Massive award, I think it was $850,000 against the New York Times. Came up to the court, and the court said, oh, civil damages are very serious. 
um, serious form of liability. Uh, but what wasn't even talked about, there's the possibility that the Alabama courts could enjoin the New York Times to ban it from publishing similar copies of the ad. Because since the early 1800s, it was understood, uh, at least it was, ostensibly, it was stated by case after case, even before there was really meaningful protection for free speech in many other ways, uh, that injunctions and libel cases are just not available. So that was the traditional understanding. Yes, civil damages, no injunctions. And there was the law of criminal libel. The same year that New York Times v. Sullivan came before the court, there was another case, Garrison v. Louisiana, which was a criminal libel case. And the court accepted that there could be such prosecutions for knowing libels. But to quote the model penal code, which rejected that, uh, um, the crime was a near desuetude that basically was not being enforced. And I think when I went to law school, that would be pretty clearly the understanding. Now, it turns out that this is not a bad model when people with money sue people with money. It's not great for plaintiffs because the barriers are, uh, uh, for libel cases are pretty high, but if you've got the goods on the defendant, especially telling knowing lies about you or negligent falsehoods even if you're a private figure, uh, or maybe even less if it's speech on matters of private concern, you've got money, you hire a lawyer, and you hope to get some of that money back. Now, what if you don't have money? Well. It's worse when you don't have money. Most things are. Uh, but you still, if you've got a really solid case, maybe you have a lawyer take it for you on contingency because the defendant has money. If you have money and you want to sue someone without money, you can hire the lawyer, although you probably, the reason you have money is that you've learned not to waste it. Uh, and if you're suing someone who has no money, that is kind of a waste. But what if you have no money and you want to sue someone who has no money? That's kind of a lost cause. <laughs> now, this used to be not as much of a problem because people without money couldn't effectively speak to the public. This is a famous line from A.J. Liebling, the freedom of the press belongs to him who owns one. Uh, and I think that was, uh, as we say in the computer business, that was a bug, not a feature of the old system, uh, that people who don't have money should be able to speak to the public. I think it's great that the internet has allowed it. But unsurprisingly, as with any other technological device, any other tool can be used for ill as well as for good. And once people who don't have money can go out there and post things that then come up and repeated Google, uh, I'm sorry, near the top of Google search results and, and uh, uh, otherwise affect someone's reputation, the question is how do you take the substantively valid libel law and what remedy will you have for it? And civil damage is the remedy that might work against the New York Times, if uh, might work against Rolling Stone Magazine, to take an example. Also, the Pink Slime case, was it about CBS? It was one of those three-letter acronym things. But no, 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 the, the recent case that led to a massive settlement of the pink slime litigation. In any event, it was against the television network. So their civil damages might do, might do well for you, but against, against somebody who is judgment-proof, what are you going to do? It's just, it's just pointless. So again, one possibility is just to say, okay, fine, let's just give up on libel. Libel does not make any sense, maybe it never did, but at this point, the game is not worth the candle. I was giving this talk at Santa Clara University, and da Professor David Friedman there, a very prominent libertarian legal scholar, said, you know, this just, just goes to show that libel law, whatever its abstract merit may be, is just not enforceable these days. That's, that's just that. So it's possible. But as you might gather, the legal system doesn't, doesn't um, uh, go so quietly into the good night. 
One of the things that I've been seeing, I, I don't make the rules, I just report on them, is the survival and revival of criminal libel law. Turns out there are about 20 cases a year of criminal libel law in about a dozen states. That's not a vast number, but my sense is certainly it's uh, 10 times more than I had expected, more than 10 times more than I'd expected before I started doing this research. Um, uh, I actually was involved uh, through the amicus brief clinic that I teach at UCLA in challenging the Minnesota statute, which actually didn't provide for a complete defense of truth. Uh, and it was struck down. I went there, we filed a brief, I, I split argument time, the court was sympathetic to our position, struck down the statute, Minnesota legislature reenacted it. That's not the sign of a law that's in near destitute. California courts are reinventing criminal libel. Uh, it, uh, it turns out that uh, California repealed its criminal libel statute in the mid-1980s, but there's a statute which actually is called the identity theft statute. That's the way it's referred to by courts repeatedly. It doesn't actually use the words identity theft, though. It says you cannot use uh, identifying information of a person for unlawful purposes. And you might think that's just of an extra punishment for other crimes. Uh, but the courts in three separate appellate cases, and who knows how many trial-level cases, in recent years have said, well, unlawful could mean tortious. So if you libel someone and use their name, which you almost always will, that could be a crime. Uh, and I'm seeing this happen under criminal harassment laws and other such laws in other states. There's a sense, I think, on the part of uh, uh, judges and prosecutors that something needs to be done. Um, uh, uh, and uh, uh, one of the things, if we go back to actually the previous slide, what's one thing that a person without money can do and routinely do do when they have a beef with someone who also has, lacks money? They call the prosecutor. They say, yeah, this guy broke into my house. No, I'm not going to sue him. Oh, I don't have the money to hire him. He doesn't have the money to, to pay this back, but I want some justice. Isn't it your job to go out there and prosecute burglars? Well, many prosecutors are thinking that it is their job to go out there and prosecute libelers, at least in those states that either have such statutes, as some do remain, or in states where the statute can be essentially reinvented. Um, now, a second thing that I want to turn to is injunctions. And first, for this, we have to understand one other thing about internet speech, other than the fact that internet speech uh, uh, is much more easily accessible to the, or much more easily available as a forum to the poor. Um, and that is that print defamation is basically a short, sharp shock. You see something in the newspaper, and it says something about you. And maybe you're, back in the day, everybody read the newspaper, all your neighbors would, would know about it. That could be really bad. But an injunction, setting aside whether it should be constitutional, is actually kind of pointless. It's not like the newspaper is going to go back and reprint the story over and over again. That's not their business model. And an injunction isn't going to pull those articles out of circulation. So sometimes you can imagine someone trying to enjoin something. Pentagon Papers is a classic example. There's a warning of this. But by and large, damages were the thing to get because that was all you could practically get. But internet defamation is more a matter of persistent damage. There you are running your own business, and somebody posts something on ripoffreport.com, let's say or complaint sport, or pissedconsumer.com. And those happen to appear pretty high up in a Google search. So you do want that taken down. You don't want damages, among other things, you can't really prove the amount of damages. You want it to stop. Or to give you another example, there's a website I like 
I don't like the site, but I like the name because it's so descriptive. It's she'saahomewrecker.com. You can imagine what the content of that site is. People want that taken down. Can they get it taken down? Well, historically, you couldn't get it taken down. But these days, I've seen literally, literally hundreds. Uh, by the way, I mean literally in the sense of literally and not in the sense of figuratively. Uh, I've seen literally hundreds of injunctions uh, against libel. Now, some of them say things like this. Defendant is permanently enjoined from publishing any statements whatsoever with regard to plaintiff. Now, that's pretty clearly unconstitutional because it isn't even limited to libel. But some of them say defendants shall not publish any further defamatory false statements regarding plaintiffs. That, at least, is limited to speech that is um, uh, unprotected by, by, not by definition, by the, the court has said false defamatory statements are unprotected. Now, the injunctions may not specifically ex explain what those statements are, but they do indeed, uh, uh, they, they, they might indeed be constitutional if we think an injunction is a viable remedy uh, in libel cases, and those courts are taking that view. Some of them uh, specifically focus on particular allegations, like defendant is permanently enjoined from ascribing conduct to plaintiff that implies he ever sexually abused anyone under 18 years of age. Uh, that is, uh, uh, all of these are from real cases, and that there the judge had found that was false and then, and then targets that statement. If you think about an injunction, it's like a little micro-criminal libel law. It's just, it's just for you and just talking about you. It's not, it's a crime for anybody to say anything that's false and defamatory about anyone else. It's you, defendant, once we have established that you have already said something false, we will make it now a crime, the crime being contempt of court. Violating an injunction is a criminal contempt of court. We'll make it a crime for you to keep saying it. About this, only, this, only about this plaintiff. Um, so really, if you think about it, uh, if you think about it, um, the, uh, if we compare these two, these two injunctions, the ones that I mentioned, uh, there are pluses and minuses to both injunctions. Again, you might say there should be no such injunctions at all, and damages should be the only remedy. But again, that means that there's really no meaningful remedy in many situations where damages don't matter. So on the one hand, the broader statement defendant shall not publish any, the broader injunction shall not publish any further defamatory false statements, has a broader chilling effect because it deters any possible statements, again, mind you, just by this defendant, about, just, by, um, uh, just uh, about this plaintiff, but still he may say, you know, what if I say something I think is true, but the judge says no, and then I get thrown in jail. Uh, the more specific one says, defendant shall not state that the plaintiff ever abused uh, 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 ever committed a particular, particular act, that has a narrow chilling effect. On the other hand, let's just look at some of the things, I'll skip around a bit, but uh, um, uh, as to the narrower injunction, you don't have really meaningful trial by jury because the injunction, being a so-called equitable remedy, doesn't entitle you to a jury, doesn't entitle defendant to a jury. It's the judge who decides it. Criminal contempt will usually call for a jury if the sentence is long enough, but the jury at that point only decides if the injunction has been violated, not whether the injunction was well-founded in the first place. The broader injunction, on the other hand, it turns out, uh, does require a jury finding of falsehood because you can only be convicted of violating it if the jury finds that it's the statement is defamatory and false. Likewise, in the narrower injunction, less chilling effect, 
But it's, the falsehood is found by preponderance of the evidence because it starts as a civil case. And then what you have to prove beyond reasonable doubt in the criminal enforcement is, again, only the injunction was breached. Uh, whereas with a broader injunction, there's actually more procedural protections. Likewise, and the maybe most important thing of all, injunctions being civil remedies do not entitle defendants to a lawyer when the injunction is obtained. So I've often seen these injunctions and I thought, why wasn't it challenged? It was clearly unconstitutional. And the answer is because the defendant didn't know how to challenge it. The defendant wasn't a trained lawyer and didn't, didn't even know, think that it was possible to appeal it. Then at that point, he violates the injunction, but then he's stuck in most states under the so-called collateral bar rule. You can't challenge the injunction uh, when you're prosecuted for violating. So it's interesting, so if you are trying to come up with a mechanism that still does try to meaningfully constrain libel, but uh, uh, tries to protect people both substantively and procedurally, each of these has some advantages and some disadvantages. I actually think there's a way of capturing the best of both, again, if the best means maximum protection consistent with continued enforcement of libel law, is you have the, narrow exception, the narrower injunction that says defendant shall not say this statement. But you throw in the word falsely there, because then you can only be found guilty of breaching the injunction, uh, violating the injunction, if it's proven that your statement is actually false. Not just had been found false by preponderance of the evidence by a judge without a lawyer representing you, but will be found false at the time you're prosecuted. So this will diminish the chilling effect. By the way, it certainly wouldn't eliminate it by any means. Nobody wants to say, oh, yes. That's fine, I'm free to speak, because when I get prosecuted, I'll have a lawyer, and I'll probably win in court. Uh, but again, if we are to have injunctions, I think that is probably the best way of dealing. So the one way of thinking about what I've been talking about so far is kind of a let's get real approach. So first we started talking about the traditional model of civil damages, but let's get real, that can't work. So we turn to criminal libel law, but let's get real. In fact, in most states, we don't have criminal libel law. Uh, and uh, people, what people really want is they don't want to go to the prosecutor. They do want to go to court, sometimes actually without much, by way of lawyering, for example, for uh, restraining orders that are often got easily gettable by lay people, uh, and get an injunction. But let's get more real than that, because the bottom line is that even injunctions as a remedy only work against the defendant who's there and their meaning within the jurisdiction of the court. What if the defendant is anonymous? Sometimes you can pierce the anonymity through enough subpoenas, it costs you a lot of money, and maybe you'll track it down to some library or some coffee shop somewhere, and you still can't figure out who the poster is. What if he's outside the jurisdiction's reach? He's in the Netherlands. You know, maybe in principle you could try to drag him into court, highly unlikely, and sometimes impossible. What if he's unable to take down the post? Some of these sites say you can't, uh, uh, they, they won't honor uh, people's requests to take, to take down their own posts because they say maybe that request will have been forced by the threat of litigation. What if he's dead? So what people do is they will turn to Google and say, Google, we know you're not in the business of trying to figure out which posts are actually accurate or not. But here I have this court order. I have this court order in which the judge says this statement is libelous. Would you please, would you pretty please, de-index this page, hide it from searchers. By the way, if you t don't include the pretty please, if you tell Google, we demand you take it down because this order binds you, Google will generally say no and we'll fight it and we happen to have some money to pay lawyers. 
because Google makes a big thing out of that they're not bound by these orders. They're, in fact, immunized by the 47 U.S.C. Section 230 federal statute that protects Google and similar companies. But as a matter of comedy, as a matter of accommodation, as a matter of good citizenship, and as a matter also of trying to prevent the spread of libels, they will enforce these orders. The problem is when you've got an order between two people that is then handed off to, to a third person, how is the third person to know what exactly happened between these two people? Sure, it looks like an order, but what if it isn't? So here's an example. See, this is a um, case from in Houston, BCI Property Management versus Luznerida Ramos. And this is the plaintiff's complaint. And it says Luznerida Ramos is a resident of Harris County, Texas. And eventually there's a stipulation from her saying, yes, I did it. I libeled him. And uh, I'm really sorry. And then the court issues a consent judgment based on that stipulation. Uh, and what's more, just as proof that this is all legit, it's actually notarized. Her signature is notarized. But it's notarized in Sacramento, California. It's OK. People travel. I had a signature notarized once in Florida. Funny thing is this one lawyer in Texas had seven cases, defamation cases, all of them claiming the defendant was living in Harris County, all of them notarized in the one of five counties between San Francisco and Sacramento. And I've seen similar patterns in, uh, uh, elsewhere in Texas, in uh, Ohio, in Florida, in Maryland, all of them notarized in Northern California. Now, I've heard of ecotourism. I've heard of medical tourism. I've heard of sex tourism. I've never heard of notarization tourism. <laughs> so there's something fishy. And in fact, the Texas AG's office has recently filed charges against a so-called reputation management company, civil case, called Solvera Group, accusing them, I think, uh, with good, good reason, um, uh, of basically conducting a massive scam where they defrauded. Actually, the lawyers may not have realized what was going on. The court certainly didn't realize. Maybe even the plaintiffs, the people hired them, just said, you know, I want it to go away. I want this defamation to go away. So they made it go away by having these kinds of orders. Pretty brazen, right? Uh, fraud on the court is a business model. So here's an example, Smith v. Garcia, federal district court. This is not, does not involve out-of-state notarization. Actually, most courts don't require notarization at all. This is, um, this is, uh, uh, engineered by another company called Profile Defenders. Paul Allen Levy, who is in, somewhere in this room, yes, he broke this case open and identified it was Profile Defenders who was, uh, was behind this. And what is this? Well, there's no notarization, and it's good there's no notarization because Deborah Garcia, who stipulated and who signed, apparently doesn't exist. The first case at least involved a real defendant, just somebody who had nothing to do with the actual, uh, 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 the alleged libel. This involves a fake defendant. Pretty brazen, huh? Well, what about this? There is a notarization here, Chris Stevansky, notarized by Samantha Pierce, Notary Public, Notary ID 2012-1234567. What are the chances of that? Well, it turns out, actually, that the uh, expiration date and the ID are borrowed from the sample, not John, G. Sam, John Q. Sample, that wasn't borrowed, uh, from the sample uh, offered by the Colorado Secretary of State's office. And when I checked into whether Samantha Pierce exists or not, doesn't exist. This is being investigated by uh, the Arizona Bar, I, I am told. Uh, so how about this one? No, no, I will tell you, this is, there's a real defendant. Uh, there's a real defendant. There is no fake notarization. 
That's not the problem. The problem is the order doesn't actually exist. This is an outright forgery. I have found 65 such forgeries that have been submitted to Google or other companies trying to get stuff taken down. So you see, you know, this is, it sounds like such a good idea. Take advantage of the existing system of civil litigation. If you get this verdict between parties PND, take it to Google, seems nice, seems efficient. The problem is, kind of like the problem with the internet, nice and efficient, but not designed with security in mind and open to rampant possibilities for abuse. I found all in all at least 100 uh, or so cases where between forgeries, between fake defendants, between forged signatures, between claims that the defendant was served but clear evidence that there weren't, uh, that there has been basically massive, massive uh, uh, fraud. It's part of the problem with remedies, right? We can all agree that libel law, we may not agree, but let's assume there's a group of people, including the judiciary, that's their view, agree that libel law is a good thing, uh, but how do you actually enforce it? And all of, the, all of the solutions have problems of their own. Every system attracts parasites is the moral of this last batch of things. Um, all right, let me move on. Um, let me talk briefly about the disclosure of private facts tort. It is newer. It's only been around for probably a century or less. I don't like it. I think it's a mistake to have such a tort, uh, but it's there. Uh, it's less broadly accepted than libel law, but still pretty broadly. I think in this room, people, probably people will be pretty skeptical, because remember, this is disclosure of true private facts. Nonetheless, one thing that we're seeing is, despite all of its flaws, we're actually seeing it getting recriminalized. Now, it may be actually the traditional law of criminal libel actually authorized uh, some such criminal prosecutions, because truth was a defense, but only with, said with good motives and for justifiable ends. And occasionally during the 1800s, you have courts talking the language of privacy, essentially, and saying, yes, certain things that damage someone's reputation, even if they're true, should be punishable as libel. But recently, in recent years, we have been seeing criminalization of the disclosure tort. Minnesota and North Dakota quite explicitly, California through that backdoor channel that I mentioned before. We're also seeing some specific limits, actually one which I think is quite right, on non-consensual porn, where the disclosure is a person's appearance while they're naked or having sex. Those actually, I think, are much less problematic, in part because they're so narrow and so well-defined. The problem with the disclosure of private facts toward is potentially very broad and ill-defined. Questions what's private, what's newsworthy, and such. But again, the reason that we're seeing calls to criminalize non-consensual porn is the typical person who puts up uh, um, uh, pictures of his ex having sex with him, it's not like he's going to be much deterred by the risk of damages liability, and it's not like the ex is going to be in much of a position to actually invoke the civil justice system. Uh, finally, let me close with one other thing, which I think is quite troublesome in many ways, but is out there, and I'm seeing it in many ways as a reaction to what is seen as the, the uh, consequences of what I call cheap speech on the internet. That it's not just free speech, it's cheap speech. I guess you guys uh, uh, have, have talked, Cato has talked about there's free as in free markets and there's free as in free beer. Well, we can have now free speech that is both free of the government and free in the sense of not very expensive, but the problem is that people are now freed to do all sorts of things that, understandably, people dislike. Uh, so you have basically react, you have, what you have is people who somebody, including a judge, sees are just kind of engaged in a campaign of harassment. Never quite clearly defined what harassment is, but engaged in a campaign of harassment. And the judge figures this has to stop. 
So there are orders like this John Texter, I'm sorry, this is to Alki David, who's a billionaire in the entertainment business, who got into a tiff with an arrival in, I think of all things, augmented, I guess holographic projections for concerts of where somebody, a performer could be projected onto the stage. They got into this tweet fight uh, and there, there was an order saying no posting any tweets or any images directed at John Texter without a legitimate purpose. There's somebody who was, uh, who was upset a local police officer and started posting things criticizing him. Order, no posting anything on the internet regarding the officer. No posting any information, whether adverse or otherwise, pertaining to forensic psychologist Stacy David Bernstein on any website or for any purpose. This Stacy Bernstein guy was actually a uh, uh, pretty prominent consultant to the FBI and to others. I mean, this is a pretty considerable guy. He'd had a falling out with an old friend of his, and this order entered and then affirmed by, by Connecticut courts, uh, uh, um, uh, essentially barring any speech about him. No mentioning a town council member's name in any email, blog, Twitter, or any document. Now, I started with libel law, which I think is constitutional, went on to disclosure of private facts, which I think is probably not constitutional, but courts don't seem to agree with me. How could that be? Uh, and I moved on to harassment uh, uh, orders, where I think actually we're now challenging in two different cases, one in Washington, one in Ohio, uh, we're challenging such statutes, we've been challenging such, such orders. I think these are unconstitutional. The important point, though, is this too is a reaction to the internet. This too, people didn't really want to issue this against newspapers in the past, partly because newspapers weren't seen as engaged in these kinds of malicious harassment campaigns. And even if they were, everybody understood, well, of course you can't stop them from doing that. But now that all of these poor interlopers are, are uh, participating in the marketplace of ideas and in public debate, and in debate about purely private matters as well, uh, courts are feeling something ought to be done. I think they're wrong, but that's, again, the situation on the ground as I'm reporting. Conclusions. Technological change leads to enforceability change, which leads to legal change. Courts have resisted the notion internet is different, have a different rule. Rightly so. But when the law is no longer enforceable, people who want it enforced are gonna start looking for some way to deal with it, either as a substantive matter or as a matter of the law of remedies. Uh, it's a response in large measure to judgment-proof speakers. Again, it's a wonderful thing that people who before couldn't really speak to the public now can. Uh, but the problem is that they can also say things that the law views and perhaps rightly as, as something that should be punished. So you have criminalization, you have trial judge control with judges saying, I've got to step in and do something, I'll issue this order. Um, you've got this public-private enforcement partnership that you know actually may still do some good, but is a subject to, to really immense, immense fraud. Uh, it's happening bottom up. It's not the Congress, it's not Donald Trump doing this. Uh, in fact, somebody might try to do this against Donald Trump and some of his tweets, but I doubt it'll work. Um, uh, it's bottom-up, it's happening, sometimes at state legislatures, but very often from just individual judges and individual prosecutors. And it's almost entirely under the radar. Almost none of this makes its way into the appellate decisions, and that's part of the... I stumbled on it and a database which allows me to find these things almost by accident, uh, and uh, makes me wonder what other things are going on out there that nobody's noticing. Uh, so, uh, with that I close, and I hear we have time for Q&A. I am told, please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and the audience watching online can hear the question and announce your name and affiliation.
Uh, uh, hi, I'm Joseph. I'm part of the Washington semester program at American University. Uh, although my home school is actually Santa Clara, so it's fun to hear that you spoke there. Um, my question is regarding a related, uh, similar topic, specifically regards actually to Donald Trump, um, with the current court case regarding him blocking people on Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, I was mostly just curious, what are kind of your thoughts on the establishment of Twitter as a uh, the public sphere sidewalk type deal versus the fact that he is also just blocking people, scrolling through the comments, in fact. You know, I, I appreciate the question. It's an interesting question. It has to do with the law of so-called limited public fora. It has to do with how the government, when the government may exclude people based on viewpoint from commenting on things that the government has voluntarily opened up, as opposed to what we've been talking about here where the government says, we don't care if it's on our property or not, we're going to punish you for it. Um, it also has to do with the question of when somebody's acting as a government Official and when they're acting just as a politician. I'm hoping we could focus a little more, if there are some questions, on, uh, on some of these remedies issues and libel and privacy and harassment issues. If not, if nobody wants to talk about that, I can talk about anything. Anything that have to do with the First Amendment. I wonder how you feel about the back page legislation in uh -huh. the House and unit. The underlying threat is that if Section 230 were under right undermined enough, um, service providers, you know, can't pre-screen every right. post that somebody's going to write ahead of time. We wouldn't have user-generated content right. at all, even though there's a fake news problem and right. they can obviously screen some things. Is this a threat to free speech as we know it? I mean, you know, Electronic Frontier Foundation right. and running and so forth. Right. Um, so it's a very interesting question and it is very closely related because all this talk about judgment-proof speakers assumes you can only sue the speaker. Uh, what if you could sue Google for providing access to particular posts? What if you could sue Twitter for hosting a particular tweet? What if you could sue Facebook? What if you could sue service provider? What if you could sue GoDaddy or some domain name registrar and such? And Section 230, 47 U.S.C. Section 230, federal statute enacted in the mid-1990s, categorically immunizes all of those. And many people believe, and I think correctly, that without the statute, you wouldn't have comments common spaces, good or bad. You wouldn't have Twitter. You wouldn't have probably Facebook, uh, or at the very least, you wouldn't uh, have any uh, at all controversial discussion allowed there because those sites would be too afraid of massive damages liability. Uh, but, but the reality is, by providing this immunity and by taking away the one kind of possible defendant who actually has money, what, you, what that means is people are largely free to defame with impunity. Maybe that's good, and in fact, on balance, I think that's better than the alternative, but it is a downside. So, let, so uh, there is now uh, legislation aimed at, uh, uh, at uh, uh, supposedly trying to stop uh, uh, essentially uh, the uh, sex trafficking, I think is a much abused term, but essentially stopping advertising uh, for sex and including sex that often involves underage. Um, uh, underage prostitutes. Uh, and by holding sites like Backpage.com and others that can host this kind of advertising, uh, holding them liable. I don't think that would violate the First Amendment, uh, but I do think that people are rightly worried about this, that they're afraid that once there's an exception for that to Section 230, there'll be exceptions for all sorts of other things as well. Um, so I'm skeptical about the proposed change, but let me, because I do think it's an important issue that's closely related to this, let me offer a broader way of thinking about it. Historically, before the internet, 
there were basically three models for, uh, for liability for intermediaries. One is what one might call the telephone company model, and that was no liability. The telephone company, partly because it was actually required to, uh, to um, uh, uh, provide service to everybody, but even apart from that, it just seen that it couldn't police what's going on. So even if somebody, there were one or two such cases, somebody had a, uh, an answering machine with an outgoing message that was defamatory, he was promoting, call this number and I'll tell you the, the straight dope about X, and it was defamatory of X. Uh, the telephone company was not liable, categorically not liable, even if it were told, oh, this phone number is being used for the XA, it's none of our business. Uh, the other extreme was the publisher model. A newspaper was liable for letters to the, uh, to the editor in the newspaper. Now, um, it could bring up defenses such as New York Times v. Sullivan, which itself, by the way, involved the newspaper acting as publisher of an ad submitted by somebody else. But those defenses might not always be adequate, especially if the speech is, say, on a matter of private concern or about a private person where the, men's, the, the mental state that has to be proven is a lot lower. Um, and then in between, there was something called distributor liability. It turns out that if a library or a bookstore had a book that was libelous, they could be sued as well. But they didn't, nobody expected them to read through every book the way the newspaper was expected to read through every letter it published. So they could only be sued once they knew that the book was libelous. So there was actually also a twist if they knew it was from a disreputable source, maybe. But setting that aside, so basically, if you called the library or sent a letter to the library or sent a letter to the, to the uh, uh, bookstore saying, look, this stuff is, is defamatory and I've got the goods, I've got proof of that, then they'd be on the hook. So I think of that as notice-based liability. In the internet, fast forward now many decades to the internet, the general rule is everybody is like a phone company in having no immunity, except when it comes to federal intellectual property law, copyright and trademark, where there is kind of a notice and takedown regime. That is a lot less burdensome than the publication regime because it doesn't require pre-screening. It only requires after the fact, uh, after, the, after a complaint checking. The problem is that sometimes even that can have a pretty substantial chilling effect on publishers. So imagine that, for example, somebody posts something critical of Scientology. And, and Scientology, we had a notice and takedown regime. I mentioned Scientology because they're known to be quite litigious. And they have a policy. Every time somebody posts something like that, we're going to send a letter threatening a defamation lawsuit and arguing that it's defamatory. Many uh, an uh, uh, operator will say, we're not willing to risk that. We think they're probably wrong, but we're not going to pay for the defense of that speech. We're just going to take it down. So that's the downside. But at the same time, I've got to acknowledge there is that kind of regime as to copyright and trademark. And at the same time, historically, it's not like we're shifting historically from everything was from publisher liability to now everything is categorical immunity. You used to have these different kinds of uh, um, liability regimes, and now we also still have some uh, different kinds, and there's been some talk about moving it from one category to another, moving some things from one category to another. John, Thank you. This is fascinating, Eugene. There's nothing new about fake news, of course, but there is something new about the ability of people to make a lot of money by right. making it up and distributing it very cheaply and in some ways having a lot of civic impact. What, if anything, are the courts saying or doing or being asked to do about fake news in this context? Right. So fake news indeed is nothing new. In fact, the first uh, Sedition Act 
uh, debate in 1798 was about what the backers of the act said was fake news. They said, the act, you guys are claiming it's this violation of the First Amendment. Not at all. It's this great liberalization of traditional law of seditious libel. Uh, it's only for false and malicious statements that, that can be punished. Some of them, by the way, would have been actionable criminal libel because there were false and malicious statements about a person, the president, but also about the government or about the, uh, about the Congress. Well, it's still, in a sense, they could have said today, fake news. Uh, likewise, there was, a, in the 19-teens, uh, during World War I, there was a statute that banned the spread of uh, false rumors about the war that were seen as demoralizing. And there was a persecution, I think in a case called Schaefer, I want to say, um, uh, uh, that, uh, that, that dealt with, uh, with that very issue. Uh, the general rule uh, is that if fake news is about a particular person, and by fake news here I just mean knowing lies, that's libel. Sometimes it's false light of invasion of privacy, but generally libel. And we don't call it fake news, we just have it be potentially punishable under the rubric of libel. But if it's not of and concerning any particular person, if it's about the world at large, or it's about the government, that's protected. One of the lesser known holdings of New York Times v. Sullivan, by the way, beyond the holding that um, the uh, First Amendment uh, applies to civil lawsuits and the requirement of, act, of recklessness or knowledge as to falsehood uh, for a, a speech about public officials was that statements about the government, even if they're outright knowing lies, are categorically protected. Now, one might ask why. And by the way, the court also more or less echoed that in the Alvarez case, the Stolen Valor Act case. Uh, why? After all, again, you don't like force or fraud, those are fraud. They may try to defraud people not out of their money, but change people's votes or change people's attitudes about a certain thing, but why shouldn't that be equally punishable? I think the conventional wisdom was it's just too dangerous to put the government in a position where it decides what is fake news and what is not. And in fact, actually, that I think is the story of the Sedition Act of 1798. Uh, that if you look at the prosecutions, the problem was precisely that you had uh, these decided by federal judges who were all appointed by the party in power, and who are quite willing to call fake news, call malicious falsehood, things that today we'd recognize are merely opinion. And I think that's an enduring problem. Uh, but I think, uh, uh, so I think setting aside particular people, the Pizzagate thing may in fact have involved uh, a libel of a particular person. Setting that aside, convent, uh, I don't see any pushback. I'm seeing pushback against the cheap speech regime I'm, uh, uh, in, in courts in the areas I've described. I'm seeing them working really hard to try to get libel and disclosure of private facts punished. I'm seeing that also in state legislatures. I'm not seeing that, rightly or wrongly, probably rightly, I'm not seeing that uh, uh, as to fake news. Including in civil litigation? Including in civil litigation. Actually, I will tell you one other case, Gronowitz, I think it was, Third Circuit case in the 1970s. This guy wrote this book about how he had this exclusive interview with the, with the Pope. It turned out it was a lie. It was a hoax. And then he was indicted for defrauding his publisher. Publishers said, it's not like you're just defrauding us out of our right to understand the world based on truth. You, you took our money. You took our, the advance. Uh, and uh, uh, um, the court said that case could actually go forward. So you could imagine in some situations uh, uh, some attempts to do that. But, uh, uh, but it's very, very rare that it's even been tried, and I think probably for a good reason.